This is Democracy on the Move. Democracy on the Move is a podcast tribute to the people and organizations who dare to reimagine our nation and drive it back to its original promise of democracy. This episode is being released on Sunday, October 30, 2022. I'm Dan Schaefer, your host for today's podcast, and thank you for joining us. In today's short podcast, I'll talk about censorship. It takes on two forms, corporate censorship, where your words are subject to filtering algorithms from private corporations before being allowed on social media, and government censorship, where politicians attempt to squelch your freedom of speech. But first, a couple of announcements. As you'll hear in this podcast, our right to vote is a cornerstone in our democracy, but sometimes it's difficult to figure out what is going to be on the ballot. Now, you may not want to wait until you get to the voting booth before you make those big decisions, so it's worthwhile to prepare for it. Check out vote411.org. You'll find a wealth of nonpartisan information about the candidates and issues that you'll see on your ballot this November. Vote411.org is sponsored by the League of Women Voters. And you know, it doesn't take a genius to figure out that money injects corruption into our government. If you're as concerned about it as I am, then check out Move to Amend. Move to Amend is an organization dedicated to passing a constitutional amendment to end corporate rule and the corrupting influence of big money in elections. You can find Move to Amend online at movetoamend.org. I've taken some heat over my use of the term revolution in last week's podcast episode. In fact, one of our followers on Twitter accused me of calling for a violent revolution, and he claimed that he contacted the FBI to investigate. Well, my response? Bring it on. And I said that with confidence because I knew that he was completely wrong. You must have heard that I called for a new American revolution, and without actually listening to the podcast, his mind immediately jumped to the extremist sense of the word revolution. He assumed I was calling for a violent overthrow of our government. And hey, that's okay. I mean, he's entitled to his own opinion. The problem is that he called the FBI on me, or at least he said he did. And it got me questioning whether we're transitioning into a police state where citizens spy on each other and call the police when they feel someone is getting out of line. So if I disappear mysteriously, you'll know what happened. <laughs> But back to the sense of the term revolution, well, there are less extreme versions of it. In the podcast, I use the term revolution in the sense that it refers to an activity or movement designed to affect fundamental changes in our socioeconomic structure. And to that end, in the episode, I expressed agreement with some of the frustration that drove people to attack the Capitol on January 6th of last year. What, you might say? Do I agree with the insurrectionists? Hell no, most definitely not. But allow me to explain. I agree with their motivation, but certainly not their methods. At the very heart of their motivation is their sense of a loss of power. Now, this loss has manifested itself into acts of extreme racism, but I believe racism isn't the core grievance here. Politicians have insidiously associated racism to distract us from the real cause. In this case, the real cause is the level of increasing socioeconomic disparity in this nation. The disparity has existed since the beginning, but it has grown to new heights in recent decades. And to that end, I cited statistics that show that since the 1970s, the rich class in this country have realized a 200x increase in their wealth relative to the rest of the nation. By contrast, I also cited the fact that, in terms of adjusted dollars, the working class in this country has not seen a raise since the 1980s. 
I also pointed out that it's not just a matter of the lopsided distribution of wealth, but the consolidation of political power within the class of the wealthy people. In other words, wealthy people now control the political machinery that directly affects our lives. And to back up this bold claim, I cited a study that revealed that the will of the people has no influence on our elected representatives. For example, the odds that Congress will support an issue that aligns with the will of the people is somewhere around 30%. And conversely, the odds that Congress will not support something that the people do not want is still around 30%. And the hard reality is that Congress supports the will of the wealthy and corporate donors 100% of the time. So, with that in mind, my conclusion is that we the people have been robbed of our republic and we are rightfully angry. Our nation has become an oligarchy. That is, we are a nation governed by a small group of people that have complete control financially and politically. I went further in the podcast episode to speculate that this culture war we find ourselves in is part of an overall plan. The plan is this. Keep American citizens locked in a culture war so that we think we're taking our nation back from some outside nefarious force like immigrants, the woke left, LGBTQ minorities, and so on, rather than learning the real truth. The real truth being that we've been screwed out of our republic. So all this fighting over abortion, religion, civil rights, critical race theory, and so on will never be resolved because they are not meant to be resolved. Most prominently, racism is rampant because it serves a purpose to the wealthy and powerful class. It is meant to keep us fighting amongst ourselves while the oligarchy continues to consolidate their wealth and insulate themselves by controlling the levers of political power. Now, as far as I can tell, these frustrations drove people toward a violent insurrection as we witnessed on January 6th of last year. But here's the real danger of the insurrection. We run a horrific risk of forcing our government across that thin line that separates oligarchy from authoritarianism. And toward that end, most, if not all, the folks that took part in the insurrection actually want to push us across that line and install Donald Trump as our supreme leader. And that would be the end of the United States as we know it. Our Constitution would be shredded. Now, there is another way, as I expressed in the podcast episode. It takes a nonviolent approach to the word revolution. It focuses instead on activities designed to affect fundamental changes in our socioeconomic situation. The most important thing is to win back our republic by dislodging our government from the grasp of the oligarchs. And there are several things we can do in this effort. One, we can pass a constitutional amendment to declare that corporations are not people, thus nullifying the infamous 2010 Citizens United Supreme Court decision which injected money and corruption into our government. Two, we can implement ranked choice voting to ensure that our representatives truly represent a majority of the people. Three, we can insist on open primaries so that everyone is allowed a clear choice as to who runs in the general election. And four, we can require the general election of our representatives to provide us with a choice of more than just two candidates, preferably four or five, as Alaska has already done. Other ideas that are perhaps more radical include holding statewide constitutional conventions and ultimately maybe even a U.S. constitutional convention. This would allow us to get rid of the electoral system and elect a president based on the popular vote that can't be threatened by rogue or illegitimate electors. It could also do away with lifetime judicial appointments, especially at the Supreme Court level, allowing each president to nominate new justices to keep up with the times. These ideas are all centered around the original promise of our republic, to ensure that people have a voice. All the people, not just the rich ones. This type of revolution is what I call the New American Revolution. 
It is as American as the Constitution itself. Our forefathers knew that times would change, and they designed a system of government to change with the times. They expressed this thought in Article 5 of our Constitution. This is sorely needed because, as it stands, we've lost our republic. But it doesn't mean game over for our great nation. It means we need to find it within ourselves to reacquire the freedoms and liberties guaranteed by our Constitution and keep that American spirit alive. By the way, I have yet to see a black van roll up in my driveway with a team of FBI agents ready to put me under the hot lamp and question me about what I'm saying in this podcast. We haven't gotten to that point in our country yet. But it does bring up the topic of censorship in our nation. This week we saw Elon Musk, the richest of the rich, complete his acquisition of Twitter. Mr. Musk has promised to remove the shackles of corporate censorship and make the service a true town square. You'll have to forgive my skepticism. Being the richest of the rich, Elon Musk doesn't necessarily have our best interest in mind. It may simply be an attempt to perpetuate the distractions that keep we the people from focusing on how much we're getting screwed out of our republic. I mean, think about it. Twitter at least tried to tamp down the flames of division that kept us all from fighting amongst ourselves, and now Elon Musk is removing those guardrails, all in an ostensible attempt to build a, quote, town square. The problem is, when you start using terms like town square when dealing with online social media, is that there really is very little that an actual town square has in common with social media. Most people on social media hide their true identity. They troll anonymously and suffer no consequences. Whereas in an actual town square, you know the people standing around you, and they know you. If you say something controversial, you'll get shouted down. You may even be physically escorted away from the venue. The feedback is immediate and personal, and it may get you to rethink your position. I mean, after all, you're surrounded by friends and neighbors, and you tend to trust them when they tell you that you're way off base. You're therefore motivated to reconsider your perspective. Maybe consider different ideas that you were unaware of. You'll grow emotionally and intellectually, and like everyone else, you'll change your views over time based upon what you've learned. Such things are not possible in social media. In that environment, people are free to shout out the most obnoxious, foul expressions, and it is impossible to shout them down or escort them away. And it's just as impossible for the trolls to learn anything from their interactions. Worse yet, the online crowd is so big that there is a good chance that there will be other people who agree with the trolls, and they can find each other quickly and create their own town square. But it's really not a town square, though, is it? It's more like an echo chamber that builds upon itself, one wild conspiracy story after another, until it builds to a crescendo where folks, armed with confidence that they are righteous with God on their side, strike out in the real world with horrific consequences. Now often these people suffer from mental instability, but not always. Do you remember Pizzagate? It was a wild conspiracy theory that went viral back in 2016 during the presidential election cycle. A conspiracy about Democratic Party officials running a human trafficking and child sex ring took hold and bounced around in echo chambers like 4chan, 8chan, Reddit, and Twitter. It was later echoed on fake news websites like Infowars, Planet Free Will, and The Vigilant Citizen. The human trafficking and child sex rings were supposedly run out of the basements of several restaurants, including the Comet Ping Pong Pizzeria in Washington, D.C. And the conspiracy story built to a crescendo built to such a crescendo that a man from North Carolina, Edgar Madison Welch, traveled to Comet Ping Pong to investigate the conspiracy, ended up firing several shots from an AR-15-style rifle inside the restaurant. Well, he was there to investigate and ultimately free the people in bondage. 
Well, of course, there were no such people. It was all fake news built in the collective mindset of an online echo chamber. Welch was arrested without incident and sentenced to four years in prison. Now, fortunately, nobody got hurt, but it could have ended very differently. We've recently seen that it didn't end so well for Paul Pelosi. Now, say what you want about Nancy Pelosi. Personal physical attacks are never justified. And yes, I'll play both sideisms here and mention that Josh Hawley's residence in Virginia was threatened as well. In a true democracy where dialogue can often be passionate and heated, nobody should stalk and threaten, threaten to harm others because of their political views and expressions. But here we are. So does this mean that Elon Musk is consciously trying to keep the online echo chambers alive and well so that it distracts us from the real agenda of keeping our nation divided? Well, to believe so, well, it would require to believe in an unproven conspiracy theory itself, and I'm aware of the irony here. It could very well be that Elon Musk is innocent in his motivations, unaware of the powder keg he's recently acquired. But given our recent history, I'm highly skeptical of his true motivation. Ultimately, I don't know Elon Musk's true motivation. And ultimately, I don't have an answer to the question of how to moderate social media to avoid the pitfalls of echo chambers that create disastrous results. Honestly, I'd like to see everyone have total freedom to say whatever they want to say. But the harsh reality is that some people use social media to incite violence and promote a violent overthrow of our government. They do this because they can, because they remain relatively anonymous. They have the ability to check into echo chambers and lose themselves. And another question to answer is whether the government should get involved in censorship. This type of censorship is as old as the concept of organized government itself. From the very beginning, governments have struggled to control messaging from its citizens. Now, the usual stated purpose is to protect its citizenship from rogue elements. But the American founders knew better. They knew that governments often use censorship to keep its citizens under control. And this is why they enshrined in the First Amendment the right to a free press. Now, it could certainly be argued that the press often abuses this right. They take on perspectives that challenge the current power structure in some way or another, and often they twist and bend the truth to fit some sort of political agenda. I mean, if you watch CNN, you know what you're going to get. Same thing if you watch Fox News. But because of our culture and background, our government has traditionally been hesitant to jump in and outright censor the news. But... There are exceptions, especially recently. Sometimes individuals within the government will directly attack freedom of the press. Donald Trump, for example, is notorious for calling the press the enemy of the people. He attempted on many occasions to intimidate the press, even going to the point of pointing out certain press outlets during his rallies and identifying them directly as the enemy. This threatened the entire news staff on hand at the time, from the cameraman to the reporter. Is this a form of censorship? Yeah, you bet it is, because it is an attempt to personally intimidate members of the press and prevent them from doing their work. Does this work? Well, if history is any guide, yes, it does work. It works well. Vladimir Putin is notorious for supporting police raids on the media. Reporters are often charged with crimes and sent to prison, or worse. And if you think it can't happen here, think again. Think really carefully. The Springfield News Leader, the local newspaper in Springfield, Missouri, recently published an article about a woman who experienced a troubled pregnancy that needed an abortion in order to save her life. Because of recently enacted anti-abortion laws in Missouri, this woman spent several desperate days trying to find a hospital that would perform the procedure. None of the hospitals in Missouri were willing to do so because they were afraid of running afoul of the law. 
As the situation grew dire, she finally found a hospital in Illinois that was willing to do the abortion procedure and quite possibly saving her life. Fortunately, the woman survived, though tragically she lost her pregnancy. When the news hit the wire, it was picked up by several other affiliated news organizations, including USA Today. And this got the attention of the Missouri Attorney General, Eric Schmidt, who's currently running for the U.S. Senate. Because this story doesn't reflect so kindly upon him, he's been trying to squelch this story by launching an investigation into both the hospitals that denied the service as well as the woman herself. Now, in all fairness, this woman decided to tell her story and allow it to be framed as a political ad that didn't speak very highly of Eric Schmidt. Because Schmidt, as Attorney General, was the first in the country to sign the most restrictive anti-abortion law right after the Supreme Court struck down Roe v. Wade, he was portrayed as not caring about women. Schmidt's opponent in the U.S. Senate race, Trudy Bush Valentine, incorporated this story into one of her advertisement campaigns. So, what did Schmidt do? He attempted to remove his opponent's ads from going over the air. Acting in the capacity of the Missouri Attorney General, he sent letters of cease and desist to at least two television media outlets that were broadcasting this ad. And, as I said, he launched an investigation into the hospitals and the woman who had the abortion. Now, is this censorship? I believe it is. It's censorship of the worst kind. Censorship implemented as a result of a personal vendetta from someone in the government attempting to keep citizens under control. It's the type of censorship that our nation's founders specifically tried to prevent. Now, there's a question as to whether the political ad is accurate and fair. Now, my guess is that it's mostly accurate and mostly fair, but in the fog of political campaigns, being close is good enough. Outright lying, well... That shouldn't be allowed, but these days lies and truth are indistinguishable, both on social media and in traditional media. Unfortunately, lying has become acceptable in today's thunderdome of political conflict, but people overall seem to be okay with it and censorship be damned. The bottom line here is that censorship in both its forms, corporate and government, shouldn't be necessary in an ideal society, but we don't live in an ideal society. As far as I'm concerned, we've lost our republic, and we're going to have to fight really hard to get it back. In the process, I believe it is vitally important that we understand the dangers of censorship, but at the same time, understand and appreciate that free speech is a two-edged sword. We need to educate ourselves and understand the benefits and limitations of free speech and take it upon ourselves to make informed decisions. We need to understand that when free speech incites violence, it is no longer protected by the First Amendment. When news outlets mislead people and distract them from the real problems in our society, we need to understand that they no longer perform a service for our community. At the end of the day, we the people need to educate ourselves and participate in our common government in order to overcome the barriers erected by those that would deny us our freedoms and liberties. Well, that's it for this week. Tune in next week where we will talk with a politically active resident living in the Ozarks. She'll offer her perspectives as a progressive person living within a highly conservative area of our nation. It ought to be interesting. You've been listening to Democracy on the Move, a tribute to all those people and organizations who dare to reimagine our nation and drive it back to its original promise of democracy. Please tune in each week where we will feature guests and topics that will help keep you in touch with our march toward a more perfect union. If you have any questions or suggestions, or if you'd like to sponsor future episodes, we'd love to hear from you. Just send us an email at info at democracyonthemove.org or contact us on our webpage at democracyonthemove.org slash contact. Democracy on the Move is all one word. Theme music, Murky Waters, performed by El Rey Music, used under license from Shutterstock. 
I'm Dan Schaefer, your host for today's podcast, and I'd like to thank you for tuning in. It's been my pleasure to be with you today. Please have a safe week ahead, and we hope you'll tune in again next week.